Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's conversation with the people who make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. Um, today, we are going to be visiting with Gracia Luzano. Um, she's got a neat initiative that she's working on to help people in the community, and uh, I'm going to let her go deep, deep into it. And uh, so, Gracia, thank you so much for agreeing to be on. This is going to be fun. Thank you for having me here. Uh, we're really excited to share our mission and vision uh, for Latino Voices. Fantastic. I'd like to start off with you just maybe talking a little bit about yourself. You know, where did you grow up? What's your, you know, kind of what's your backstory and what got you to be where you are today? All right. So um, uh, where do I start? <laughs> well, let's start with my journey here. So I have um, been in Chaska, living in Chaska, Minnesota for 22 years. Um, when I was 11, uh, my mom moved us up here. So it was me and my two younger siblings. I'm the eldest of three. And we um, came straight from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico, which is very um, warm, very tropical, nice weather. <laughs> And we arrived to Chaska, Minnesota in April. So the contrast was very, uh, very um, extreme for me. And I'm talking April, so it wasn't like it was the middle of winter. But for me, it was pretty Still cold. had to be a lot. <laughs> I mean, it was the very first time I saw snow on the ground. And we're talking April snow, so like everything was melting. <laughs> but to me, it was just crazy to see that there was snow on the ground and people were out jogging at six in the morning in shorts and now I'm thinking yeah it's 50 why not wear shorts <laughs> that's what 20 years in Minnesota does to you <laughs> yeah exactly um, but when I arrived here so a lot of my family um, before I moved to the U.S. was already living here so I had a couple of cousins uh, in California and here in Minnesota and they spoke English around us but it wasn't my main language so I knew very very little English in nothing of the American culture except for what you see in pop movies. So think of it like as much as we know about India or as much as we know about Asia or as much as we know about Mexico, you know, like whatever is shown in movies was my idea of what America was. So uh, lots of uh, Sylvester Stallone movies from the oh. 90s. So <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of understanding of um, the culture or the language, but I also didn't have an understanding of the systems. So I was thrown into fifth grade <laughs> um, with one other uh, Latina in my class, and she was a second generation. So not the, not the child of an immigrant, but the child of children of immigrant. That's second generation Latina. And her Spanish was very, very broken. So she was very little help to me in the classroom. She would say half the sentences in English and the other half in Spanish. And it was, I mean, I understood as much the teacher as I understood my friends. So <laughs> it was really difficult for me and for my entire family. Um, my mom, we moved in with my aunt for about a year. And then after a year, my mom bought a mobile home and we were independent financially, but we didn't have a lot of support. So we didn't know that there was food shelves. We didn't know that there was assistance. We didn't know that, you know, we could get um, support with uh, my younger siblings who was still qualified for WIC. Um, when my mom got pregnant, we didn't know that she qualified for medical assistance. I mean, there was a lot of things that, you know, as an immigrant family, there was definitely a lot of 
scarcity around um, on trying to, you know, you don't have a support system. So you're trying to create that and the finances were tough. And there's a lot of assistance out there, but we didn't know about it. And so as we, as I learned English and, you know, we just grew in the community, we started to tap into those services and getting to know people in the community. You know, the friend of a friend of a neighbor told us about the WIC and the friend of a cousin of uh, neighbors told us about the CAP agency. And so little by little, we started connecting with all of these organizations that would help around. And um, I think around... 10th, 11th grade, I started getting involved in the community. So um, I started seeing some of the needs for representing the Latino community. And my mom always pushed me to uh, translate. I mean, uh, that was a huge need in our community, just being mm -hmm. able to translate for other people um, who were in the same situation that we were previous years. And I'm talking maybe six years after I got into the U.S., um, I was already translating for the county or for the doctors or for landlords and it was you know just co-workers of my mom who needed help or someone at church who's who just moved here and needed to have their kids enrolled in school and there wasn't a lot of language support back then so i was kind of forced into learning the systems through translating for people and how did you learn um, english um in school i mean i was and ELL learning. So the school district had a program for kids who came to the U.S. that didn't speak English. And it was back then it was called ESL, English as Second Language. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool because I had in my classroom, there was a lot, maybe four or five Latinos from different parts of Latin America, which was really, really cool. So I had a friend from um, Salvador, a friend from Peru, a friend from, uh, I think he was from Venezuela. And then I had a really close friend from Japan, um, oh. a friend from Vietnam. There was a boy from China and a girl from uh, France. And so we had a huge exposure to different cultures and we were forced to learn English because there was no way we could talk to each other in, in any other language. I mean, that was sure, a commonality. Sure. And we grew together and we learned together. And so uh, by ninth grade, so I started my formal English classes in sixth grade. And by ninth grade, I had graduated out of that. And my best anecdote is um, when I finished my um, ESL course, like I graduated from ESL uh, and was thrown into mainstream English classes. Like, you know, when you take your English, um, your English lessons, the very first class I took was oral communication. Mm. And when I saw the syllabus, I had to do three speeches in front of my classmates. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> I don't manage the language very well. <laughs> and here I am, right? <laughs> Giving speeches everywhere. So um, it's just one of those things that, you know, serendipity. It just happened to be the one thing that I feared most. And that was the one time I overcame it. And I remember my teacher, shout out to Mrs. Flum. I think she's still teaching in the high school, but she was amazing at encouraging me. Uh, I was so afraid of saying something wrong. I think that was my sure. biggest fear, like knowing that English was not my first language, mm -hmm. knowing that English was not something I dominated made me feel afraid of being judged for speaking it wrong. And um, she always encouraged me to just try. Uh, no one is perfect. Uh, trust me, no one is going to make fun of you for saying something different. And I would, she would coach me a lot. So that was my very first experience with the, with, um, 
English as a formal class. Uh, and then, like I said, when we got forwarding to high school, um, in my senior year, I started working with an organization in Minneapolis for a project called uh, the Minnesota Dream Act. And the Minnesota Dream Act was uh, students and organizations rallying around allowing for immigrants to be able to have access to education. So the issue was, and this was my situation, I was an undocumented student. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated high school, I wasn't going to be able to qualify for financial assistance through the state or the, or the country, obviously. But also, I wasn't able to qualify for in-state tuition, which is huge, especially mm -hmm. if you're a minority or if you're coming from a family that has very, very little income. So not being able to access um, FAFSA, not being able to access funds, and having to apply as not only an um, out-of-state student, but an international student was huge burden for a lot of Latinos. And so a lot of uh, Latinos, a lot of uh, immigrants dropped out. And that was my my biggest, um, I think it was my biggest eye-opening moment was seeing how many of my classmates when we got to high school ended up dropping out their junior and senior year because they saw that there was no other opportunities for them. So they thought, you know, if I'm going to end up working at a factory uh, for minimum wage, I might as well start now so that I can start moving up uh, when I'm young rather than waiting for me to graduate high school. And those are two years that I could start doing that and earning more money and supporting and helping my family. So that's been uh, that was the commonality. And I pushed for um, I did a lot of speeches for the DREAM Act and it finally passed after I graduated. I think it was like three years after I graduated. But they finally passed the Minnesota Dream Act. And so that's um, an opportunity for a lot of students to be able to afford higher education that not only helps them and their families, but also helps the community. The, the Latino community is growing and people who are bilingual are needed everywhere. And so I always um, am continuously working with the school districts to encourage Latinos to graduate high school and to pursue higher um, education, whether it's four-year degrees, two-year degrees, um, short careers, something that mm -hmm. is going to allow the community to um, to take advantage of those additional skills. Because it's not just the language aspect, it's the cultural aspect. And I think that's something that we always highlight in our organization. So, so then, talk, talk about the dream before I keep going, I, before I forget, talk about the Dream Act a little bit or the Dream. It, it, what specifically was that initiative around for people who maybe are unfamiliar? Sure. So the Minnesota Dream Act allows any student who has graduated from a Minnesota high school that has attended for, I believe, it's two to three years. I'm not exactly sure what um, the, st the stipulation is, but I think it's three years. So to have had completed three years of high school in a uh, high school in Minnesota, regardless of your immigrant status, you're able to apply for an in-state tuition, which okay. is a huge help. So when I graduated, <laughs> I um, was accepted into the University of uh, St. Thomas in St. Paul. And I was lucky to get a scholarship. But when I saw the first bill, for one semester, yeah, one semester, it was $30,000 because I was an out of, not only an out-of-state tuition, but an international tuition. And that's huge. Well, and, and private schools always and expensive, but school. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you add all these things up and I couldn't apply to a public school because I didn't have a social security number. So there's a lot of layers that that ended up making that number so big. And like I said, I was lucky enough, well, 
and I worked really hard to get that scholarship. But there, I knew there was a lot of students who weren't able to get that done and still had a dream to be able to um, give back to their community and to their family by having higher education. And being able to achieve that was very important. I grew up um, with my mom always talking about the importance of having higher education. She was a single mom of three. And she always talked about how her education made her be able to overcome a lot of the things that she she dealt with as as she struggled in life. And so I am now a single mom and I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that higher education is definitely opening up a lot of doors that it wouldn't have if I hadn't been able to take that step. Nice. That's that's okay. the dream act in a nutshell. Um, that sure, also sure. opened up the possibility for what now is considered DACA or deferred action for childhood arrivals. And that was an initiative during the Obama administration to allow youth, um, and the, the whole premise for the DREAM Act was that all of these students, all of these kids who are graduating high school have been brought in by their parents um, with no fault of their own. So, you know, all those accusations of you're skipping steps, you're messing up the system, you didn't enter the correct way, all of those things that are not of their fault. My sister was five when she moved to the United States. So she couldn't say to my mom, uh, I'm sorry, mom, I'm not going with you because you're breaking the law. You know, it, it's it's that mentality of we need to be able to understand what the reality of these kids are. And as they're growing into adulthood, give them the opportunities that this country is able to give youth to be able to succeed. And so um, so that that really was the premise of the DREAM Act. And it skyrocketed into the um, to DACA. So DACA, for those of you who don't know, is uh, an executive order that allows youth who entered the country before the age of 16, whether they were alone or, or with their parents, um, lived in the country before the year 2007 and continuously stayed in the country and have fulfilled some sort of education. So most of these kids either graduated from high school, are going through high school, or are going through college, which was my case. So at the time I applied for deferred action, I was already in my second year of college. Mm -hmm. And I was continuing my education. And so that that's kind of the basis. Like we want to make sure that the people who are here are um, being encouraged to provide more for the community. And there's a huge community of DACA recipients who are lawyers and community advocates and nonprofit workers and uh, workers in the healthcare system that are constantly battling that. That maybe is something we could table for a different time. Um, but DACA is definitely something that I'm always passionate on talking about. That's not well, what we're here for today. Well, I don't think a lot of people, I know, I, I just, as long as we're on it, just a little bit about deferred action. What's the action that's deferred? You're talking um, about. So, yeah. So it prevents, it prevents the uh, person, the applicant from being uh, detained and deported. It allows them to have a, a temporary work permit and it's uh, up for renewal every two years. So every two years you get a non-permanent residency that's up for renewal um, at the end of the term. And then every two years you reapply and you state how you're fulfilling, you know, the, the prerequisites, which is, again, contributing to the community, um, continuing education or having had a continuous education and providing back to the services of the community. So mm -hmm. it's, it is law abiding people who, um, unfortunately, there is no pathway for citizenship. Uh, and there's been a lot of speculation about whether that's going to happen or not. But it allows at least for a lot of people to be able to get higher education and provide that back to the community. Well, and function. 
I mean, as opposed exactly. to being a, a you know, a, a contributing member of society as opposed to, a, a, a you know, what people perceive as a drag on society. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, so, sorry, we kind of got in the ditch a little bit, but that was my fault. I know. That's sorry. okay. Well, that's all right. Sorry, I, I think there's just a, a well, there's a lot of terms. I I, I wanted to hear, I, 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 and I know a lot of these things, but I wanted to hear you explain it because I know there's a lot of people that hear things and depending on where they hear it from, it has a pretty hard slant, you know, in very... Yeah in various uh, 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 ideologies. And so I thought it would be good for you to just kind of say, you know, here, here, here's what it looks like. Sure. So, um, okay. So you're, you, you've gone through, you've gotten your education, um, you, you're doing interpreting, you're doing, uh, uh, you know, you're becoming a mom, you know, what, what, what was next on the path for you then? So I did a lot of a lot of my jobs um, as I moved out of college was were, were based around social services. So I worked with the school district for a while, being a paraprofessional, so supporting families of immigrants who came in and didn't know the language. And then I uh, gave I was given an opportunity through Launch Ministry, and I did a lot of um, social service for homeless youth and bringing in that cultural piece to understand a lot of youth of color who are experiencing scarcity and um, homelessness in, in our county. Uh, and then uh, just helping the community in general, that was a lot of my volunteer time. Um, then a couple of years ago, so in 2019, my, mo my mom and I um, got together and we talked about some of the issues that were happening in the community. So back in 20, I believe 2018, the city bought um, what is now going to be redeveloped into City Square. Is that City Square East or West? West. East west. is city where the gazebo square. is. Yeah. So developing City Square West was a project that came up. And as I started like looking into it, I realized they were going to tear down all the businesses in that um, mall strip. And those are the only Latino businesses in the area, in the entire Southwest metro area. I mean, and, and for people who don't know, that's where China Pagoda is. That's where Chaska My Love is, the bakery, the laundromat, and the little market on the, mm -hmm. um, that's right market. basically yeah. behind the post office. And so all of those were the, not only were those only Latino uh, businesses in the area, but that's where the Latino community gathers. And it's the commonality of not only the language, but the culture. You know, you get your cultural foods there. And it's the thing that that grounds you back to to your culture and to your roots. And a lot of families, again, second, third generation families still frequent those places, not because they don't speak English or they don't know how to cook other meals, but it, it it's a tie to home. And I love taking my daughter there. She likes the food there. She likes to go to the little stores and seeing all the trinkets that they bring from Mexico. And, you know, there's always a story behind it. There's always a story behind what we buy, whether it's, you know, the chips that I used to love when I was a kid to this is what my grandma used to make with me uh, as a dinner and we're going to bake it together. And so I don't make tamales, <laughs> they're tedious, <laughs> but I still do make a lot of those traditional foods for my daughter. And even though she has never been to Mexico, she feels connected to her country and her culture through those things. And so my mom and I started talking about, you know, how we could, uh, how could we avoid this? from happening and we realized that we were just two individuals. It was just me and her trying to do something, trying to make a huge change in the community and it wasn't enough. And then we started realizing that there was a lot of needs within the community for the immigrant community and the Latino community 
that are being left unmet because of different barriers that um, happen in the county. And it's not anyone's fault necessarily. It's just that no one has looked at that through that scope. And so we gathered uh, about 15 people in the Latino community that we considered to be leaders. And we talked about creating a project. And out of those 15 people, five of us stayed. <laughs> and we started Latino Voices. So this was coincidentally right before the pandemic. And as we were developing our strategic plan, the pandemic hit. And that's when we really realized how much support the community needed. Because when COVID hit, people had no access to internet. They had no access to food. They had no access to healthcare. They had no access to, um, their kids had no access to education. It was so hard to get some of these kids to go to school online because even if parents were provided the Chromebook for the kids, they didn't have childcare at home. They weren't able to work from home. They were a lot of essential workers. So they had to go to work and leave their kids at home. And the kids weren't able to get that additional support to connect to the computers. Sometimes they didn't have internet. Sometimes um, kids relied a lot on school lunches to get food because they qualified for free and reduced lunch. And during that time, there was no school lunches. So we had to figure out how to help and support the communities. And we partner up with the school district. We partner up with the CAP agency. We partner up with the county, a lot of local nonprofit organizations and churches so that we could provide the services. And that's when we started working very hands-on with the community. We put a halt on everything else. So we didn't become a legal nonprofit organization until this year because we were so busy during the pandemic, getting um, COVID shots, getting vaccination clinics, getting um, COVID tests done, doing COVID clinics, setting up people for um, information and resources, translating those resources in Spanish, helping people set up um, appointments at clinics, getting kids uh, set up for internet connections. I mean, it was we did not realize how much work needed to be done. And and we just pushed through it. And we realized that the work that we needed to do, that work that we thought we needed to do was a very small fraction to the work that actually needs to be done in the community. So that's so, that's where the idea of Latino Voices started. So, so as you think about the organization right now, what would you say is your mission, your purpose, your vision? So our mission... Our purpose is not to be needed. I always tell everybody that if if our organization gets to the point where we're not needed, I will be more than satisfied. And the reason I say that is because of um, the kind of services we provide. So our vision is to have a Carver County in which people have access in a way that is not that doesn't have any barriers, whether it's their culture, whether it's their background, whether it's the language. Uh, we want to be able to eliminate those barriers or find ways to eliminate those barriers. And we work very closely, not only with the community members, but we also work with the organizations to be able to eradicate those barriers because you don't know that they're there. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a couple of examples in a little bit. Um, and our, our vision is really is that to, so VOICES is an acronym and our vision goes back to that acronym. So V is for VOICE. We want to be able to voice some of those needs of their, that our communities have specifically, again, the Latino community and the immigrant community, which is not always one and the same. And the mm -hmm. needs are not always the same. So we always talk about, you know, what does the Latino community need culturally? But we also talk about what does the immigrant community need as immigrants in general? What are some of those generalizations of the immigrant community, whether it's Somali or Russian or um, Latino? 
there are a lot of similarities to what the immigrant community's needs and fears are. Um, the mm -hmm. O stands for organize. So we organize around the um, community to be able to provide services and the to meet their needs. Uh, VOI. I always have to go through the letters in my yeah, head. VOI. I was going to, I'll keep you on. <laughs> I is for inspire. And that's where we go back to the roots and connections, um, transgenerational. So we have been doing a lot of events that are very culturally based uh, for teaching. And we want to inspire the, the generations that are upcoming. So second and third generation immigrants, and again, not necessarily just Hispanic, but second and third generation immigrants to really find those roots that um, are within them that make them who they are. That assimilation is, is something of the past. And now we are here to embrace everything that makes us unique, everything that, that makes us us. And so like one of the, the biggest testimonies for that was um, probably River City Days. So we were a part of the River City Days Parade in Chaska. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just put out a, a call to the community and said, you know, come bring your kids and represent your culture. And we had kids bringing their soccer jerseys from their, their soccer team in their country to people um, wearing uh, Dia de los Muertos attire with the whole face paint to people showing up in their traditional dress wear. And it just, it was so open to what represents your culture. And it's that inspiration for the younger generations to really take pride on who they are and what their background is. And so that inspired a lot of kids to continue working um, one of them being my daughter, and I'm going to do a little shout out here, but so we had our, our last big cultural event was a presentation for Dia de los Muertos, and my daughter has always been shy to like participate on things. She's not big into even dressing up for Halloween, but she decided that she wanted to dress up and represent her culture at Dia de los Muertos, and she asked me to paint her face like a Katrina, and she asked me to do the flowers in her hair, to braid her hair, to do the whole show. And I feel like that is just a testament to how we inspire different um, different youth of our community to really find the roots of their culture. Um, we also, uh, I see, we connect. And connect is uh, probably the biggest piece of our organization. We work with the community one-on-one, -on -one. work with every uh, family that comes to us to assess what their needs are and how do we meet those needs. So. Uh, just a brief example, if I have a family who comes to us and says, you know, my children are in need of shots, we're starting the school year, and the school's asking for the kids to have their shots, their vaccinations up to date, and we don't have health insurance for the kids. So obviously, step one is to do just an assessment on what does your family qualify for? Are your children um, eligible for Minsure or for Minnesota Care? If they are, then we walk you through what are the steps to qualify for that. What do you need? Where are the applications? Who do you talk to so we can get that done? And we hold their hand all the way until they're approved. From, you know, filling out the application, if it's in English, um, to, you know, talking to the caseworker and figuring out how to get the documentations for verification. And if they don't qualify for that, then we move on to the next step. So your kids don't qualify for Minnesota Care or Minsure let's look for free clinics, let's look for vaccination clinics, let's connect you with clinics that are offering those services. And in the meantime, not only are we connecting you to get those vaccination needs, but we're assessing what other needs are you missing and how do we get those met? 
so that when you leave here, you will leave with all the tools to have healthy children, to live healthy in the community. So it's a lot of it's a lot of hours to do casework, to do one on one, to do all these phone calls, to do the investigative work. But at the end of the day, it, it helps the community be healthier, and in general, um, it helps the community thrive. And that's really what we're all about, having a community thrive. Um, C-V-O-I-C-E. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the E stands for equip. And so going back to my example, as we're doing one-on-one -on -one work with the, with the families, we not only show them what, not only do we show them how to get the access to the services, we show them how to get the access to the services. So as we're filling out, say, the CAP form to apply for SNAP benefits, we talk about, okay, so what is what is SNAP? Um, who can qualify for SNAP? So that when people leave our uh, services, they leave with a knowledge of what, what the services are, and they can in turn turn around and refer other people to those services so that everybody has equal accessibility to it. So, you know, now, now you know how to get SNAP and you find out that your neighbor needs it, then you can refer your neighbor, neighbor to the services. And the Latino community is very much word of mouth. A lot of misconceptions happen because of that, but a lot of information gets done that way as well. And we feel like that's a huge tool and a great asset that we have. Equipping the community with the tools that they need allows for them to be able to support each other and grow. But we also equip the community at large. So we work very closely with the organizations that want to partner with us on checking their services. What is it that you're offering? Um, who do you want to offer it to? And how do we get there? So just a brief example, we, we've been working a lot with um, ACT United, which is a nonprofit that uh, supports in uh, protecting children against sex trafficking and sex torture. Mm -hmm. And we talked I, I a lot had, about um, I had Jessica on um, oh, one of the first season and season one of the podcast. We had That's Jessica awesome. on. Yeah. So Go it's a cool organization. Podcast, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll so, put a link in the show notes. I'll put a reference to it, which episode it is. I know it's season one, but I don't recall which one. Or I don't remember if it was like seven or eight, but yeah, she's terrific. So she is. her work is amazing. And so what we did is we talked about, you know, why, what are some of the unique cultural aspects that prevent kids from having the education they need on sextortion? We talked mm -hmm. about um, some of the taboos specific to the Latino community. And then we designed a program in which we held uh, a clinic for youth that was bilingual and it was close to their home. So then we eliminated the transportation issue, we eliminated the cultural barrier, we eliminated the language barrier, and we were able to graduate 10 kids from that program. So that's 10 teenagers that have more knowledge of sextortion and sex trafficking. Um, and that's just one example. We work very closely with, what are you providing? What do you wanna get out of this? What, what are your services? And how are people hearing from you? And what are some things that prevent the, the diverse communities from coming to you. So we've worked with the sheriff's department in Carver County. Uh, and Jason and I have talked extensively about some of the things that are lacking in the, in the department, not because he doesn't want to have it, but because he doesn't know. So uh, the very, very beginning we talked, the very first thing we, we revised was their procedure for, um, oh my goodness, the word is escaping me right now, of course. The procedure for reporting abuse, that's what it is, for reporting oh. abuse <clears throat> okay. and um, uh, racial profiling. 
And so he said, you know, we have a, a process that's very cutthroat. You know, you come in, you fill out the form and you drop off the form. And then we follow up and we will believe anybody. We will do a full investigation. I said, okay, Sheriff, now let's take it back and look at it from the perspective of an immigrant. You are an, an immigrant in this country who probably is fleeing the government from your country. Someone who's already experienced um, some sort of altercation with authority in your country. And that's why you left. And so you're here and you're experiencing the same thing. That's already triggering your trauma. And not only that, but you're expecting people to come to you at the sheriff's office and to give you their information. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid of coming into your office. They're afraid of coming into a place where they don't speak their language and where they could be faced with immigration. And whether you're here documented or not, it's a real fear to have immigration officers walk around and have to ask you your status because they have a lot of power over you. And so then we talked about, okay, so what are some of the things that we can change? Could we do this in Spanish? Could we have the forms online? Could people fill them out anonymously? What are some of the things that we can, um, that we still need if you're reporting anonymously? How can we get to the community? And so we've been working a lot with him on making sure that the systems that exist are systems that also reach people who are having unique uh, and very different uh, barriers that you just don't think about until somebody who's been in that situation comes and tells you. So that's okay. the that's um the uh, equip part you know we, we want to make sure that we don't hold all the answers we know that we don't have all the answers but we also know that we can work together into being able to provide the answers for the community and it's a lot of work and it's going to take a long time but we got to start somewhere and we got to get started and th th i think one of the biggest things has been and, and jason has can attest to this um, we've been working with him and with um, Chief uh, Ryan Stever on getting the Latino community to be more comfortable with law enforcement. And so some of the initiatives we've done have allowed for the community to be able to be more involved. And now we have more kids who are Latinos interested in the police explorers. We have more people reporting crimes. We have more people calling on domestic violence because they're no longer they don't have that fear that they initially had. And it's through creating these processes in which we equip the community, both sides of the community to be able to work with each other. And of course, the last one is serve. We uh, have been volunteering at this organization for years now. And previous to it being an organization, a lot of my time was volunteered. It's funny, my daughter, when a couple of years ago, someone asked her what, she, what her mommy did. Like, so, so what does your mom do for a living? And I was just eavesdropping and listening. She goes, my mommy has two jobs. She got, she has the job at launch that she gets paid for. And then she has the job that she invented for herself and that she doesn't get paid for. <laughs> and I was like, like yes. That's <laughs> pretty spot rewarding. on. Exactly. And it, it's very rewarding. It's, it's all about serving the community and, and knowing that, you know, somebody was in a, is in a situation where I was and mm -hmm. what would I have liked? And it's just going back to the golden room. What would I have liked to have experienced when I moved here? What would have been helpful for me to know? What would have been helpful for my family to avoid um, a lot of the, the issues that we went through from, you know, food scarcity to fear of um, of an abuse there? And we just I just look at it from that perspective. And I, I think, you know, no child should go through hunger. No child 
should think about their safety. No child should be thinking about whether they're going to wake up and have their parents be here. That Those are issues that I lived through and I don't want, I certainly don't want my daughter experiencing, but I also don't want anyone else in the community experiencing. So if there's anything I could do to bridge that gap, I will. Nice. So where do you, so you said your ultimate objective would be to not be needed, but what oh, yeah. do you, what right now, I mean, and you've got a lot of things that you're working on. What do you think's the most pressing kind of next thing that you're working on? Um, probably. So we've worked a lot in safety. Uh, and I think our next step is, um, healthcare. So there's a lot of huge statistics on how poor the health is of the Latino community in this County. And, um, we want to put together a project in which we can bring in healthcare providers that either have low or sliding, um, low cost, sliding cost or free clinics, uh, that people can have access to, but we also want to bring in um, like uh, ministry brokers who are able to help people, you know, know whether they qualify for or not for healthcare. We want to make sure that we have a couple of insurance providers that are able to sell some of those things because sometimes people can't get insurance through their work, but they can afford it, but they don't know that that's something that they have access to because of their, um, because of their immigration status and so a lot of people will go around not knowing what they have access to and this would give us the opportunity to be able to bring to the table all of those tools that they do have access to so that they're able to have a healthier life for them and for their kids i mean ultimately everybody wants that everyone's everybody wants their kids to be healthy and everybody wants to be healthy themselves and i know that that's a huge issue in the latino community and there's a lot of services out there there's no knowledge of the services or how the system works you know everybody knows that st mary's offers a great um sliding cost clinic but how do you get there how do you get referred what what do you need to get there um and so that's really what we're looking for right now is to start working on that uh we partner up a lot with some of the programs that already exist. Like right now, our biggest partnership uh, during this season is with Chaska Santa. And we offer uh, support in getting people signed up for Toys for Tots, but we also know that um, Chaska Santa is not just Toys for Tots. There's a lot more involved in there. And so we're able to um, check in with him and make sure that we get people access to food for the holidays. We get people access to um, holiday decorations. And again, it just allows us to be able to tap into accessibility for other things. So as we uh, are doing our clinics, we're working out of the rack right now on Sundays, signing people up for um, for Toys for Tots or Tasca Santa. And as we're sitting with people and signing them up, we are, you know, through our conversations, we find out whether they need food assistance, whether they need assistance with health care, whether they need assistance with education, whether they need assistance with uh, dental care. And so all of those conversations are very fruitful because then it becomes uh, a reference, a referral for something else. Sure. And the community gets full around services. Um, so that's our bit, next project. And then we have... Um, they were just reached out by the school district, one of the paraprofessional, not paraprofessionals, the, what do they call them now? Intercultural specialists uh, reached out to us and they want to work with us on um, having a bridges program. I think it's through the U of M, but it's a program that works with youth uh, to be able to get some support for higher education. So it, this program starts in sixth grade and uh, accompanies the kids all the way through their senior year. And their inscription rate right now is really low. 
and a lot of the Latino kids are, like I mentioned earlier, um, failing school or dropping out their junior and senior year because they don't see that they have other possibilities and their parents don't know how to navigate the system. So this is a program that would allow them to have an access to navigating the systems and getting that support that you would otherwise get from your, otherwise get it from your parents. I mean, I remember my experience with starting college and how hard it was because I didn't know my mom graduated from college in Mexico and she, her, um, process to getting into college was very different than mine so I was in my senior year and she was like yeah we'll just go to the university and apply that's what her experience was sure. and then we I started talking to the counselors and I found out that I should have applied the year before and that I should have been looking for scholarships already and that I should have been accepted already so I was really late to the game not because I wasn't interested but because I didn't know the system and so sure. this would allow a lot of kids and parents to learn those systems and I think that's really our goal to be able to equip the community to to give the families the tools that they need to be able to achieve the goals for their kids because ultimately all parents want the same things for their kids they want their children to be healthy and they want their children to be successful and I, I think whether you are or, um, Democrat or Republican, whether you are an immigrant or a native born, um, wherever country you're from, whatever creed you pray to, that's just universal. You mm -hmm. want your children to be healthy and you want your children to be successful. And if there's any way that we can partner up to make that happen, let's do it. I like it. So how, if, if somebody's inspired by what you're saying, how can people engage with your organization? If they want, I mean, what, what roles do you have for people to help out or pitch in? So all of these workshops that we do, and we do a lot of workshops. We um, have been working very closely with um, the county uh, to get some workshops out there. And these workshops require a lot of work. <laughs> it requires a lot of volunteers, whether it's, you know, setting up tables, um, putting up chairs, uh, cleaning up the place to you know contacting organizations that are able to come and do workshops with us um so if you have anyone that you want to refer to us if you have whether it's an organization or an individual or if you have any skill i mean literally it is from like carpentry to translating um i'm sure we'll have a need for it <laughs> we just did at our last event i mean we had a volunteer put together the the basis for the ofrenda and that was carpentry and i was like i i know the difference between like drill bits and whatever it is that you're using i would just put a table together so if you want to connect with us you can go to our facebook our um, web page which is latinovoicesmn.org otherwise you could connect uh, with us um you can get more information via email uh at info at latinovoices.org and that comes straight to me or you, you can shoot me a text or call uh, my okay. cell phone is 952-594-5220 uh, and i only speak english and spanish my mom speaks some somali so we might be able to get some translation for somali <laughs> we also know a lot of people in the community that yeah if you don't know you know somebody who knows somebody right i got a guy exactly and that's I really how this organization works you know you i know somebody who knows somebody who's going to get you the right connection so right. we're still looking for a place to look to host this um, healthcare workshop. Uh, we're still looking for people who want to. How uh, big of a place do you need for the healthcare workshop? Um, well, we want to know. We want to work with the space. So 
we haven't determined how many people we want to invite because we don't have a space. So obviously we have a space that can only fit six vendors. We'll invite six vendors, but essentially we want to invite as many people as we possibly can. If we can have like all insurance providers come in and be able to do some selling of insurances at the same time, we can invite, you know, all the four clinics that do um, free clinic services. And we want to have the dental services come in. Like the bigger the space, the more we can fit. You give us the opportunity and we'll fill the space. Trust me. <laughs> so we've worked with something as little as a park to something as big as a community center so far. And, and it, it's all about being able to have access to it. And once we do, we're, we're able to work with that. And, and like I said, we have been able to have enough, enough connections and partnerships where we can provide all of these things to the community. It's just the opportunity. Oh, you just froze. Are you there? I'm still here. Okay. Yep. You said opportunity and then it stopped. I think you just froze up for just a sec. So, all right. Well, you give me your, you, we've given everybody your cell number. We've given them the, your email and the website. Um, is there any parting thoughts before we, before I let you go? Cause I, you've been very gracious with your time tonight. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, I don't know. What can I say? What can I say that I haven't said yet? <laughs> well, you, um, you, you guys, uh, what's your role of your, what's your mom's role with the organization? Um, so right now she is the board director and I'm the executive director. Okay. Um, so we, we work very closely. Uh, she still takes the mom role very seriously. So even though we're on equal terms, she'll still tell me what to do. <laughs> well, that's mom's prerogative. Um, exactly. But it, it works out very well. You know, she, I told her the other day, I said, mom, I think I'm ready to step away from my role. And she said, I don't accept your resignation. <laughs> I can't I'm going to ground you. <laughs> so, okay. okay. I will stay. All right. As long well, as, as long as we're on the same terms, I will stay. Um, but we, like I said, we started this organization together and it's our baby and we're watching it grow. Um, we both have very different roles in the organization. I do most of the um, uh, engagement, speaking, uh, the, the planning part comes from both of us. And then she does a lot of the one-on-one -on -one community engagement. She's just got a very unique way of connecting with, with the immigrant community. And I, I mean it every immigrant community. I mean, she, like I said, she's speaking Somali because she's got a lot of coworkers that are Somalian and she just decided to up and pick the language. Um, she's got a lot of friends from different cultures and it's just very inspiring for me to see that she has not given up on on her dream. Uh, she hasn't given up on uh, wanting to help and support the community, despite a lot of the the things that we've gone through as an organization and as a family. I mean, it, it's been a very hard transition for her. She came as a single mom in her 30s with three children, trying to figure out how to provide for us a better life. And I think she's been doing a phenomenal job. Um, and I tell her, her all the time, but I think her dream is to do more than just us, you know, her dream is to help and support everyone in her community. And that that's really what inspired me. She has been my inspiration. I hope she's hearing this. Well, you have to play it for her if she is not listening, but she, it's, she sounds, I, I met her. She's very impressive and, you know, as are you. And so I'm sure you're inspiring your daughter. So this is, this is very nice that, you know, they're, you're continuing that legacy of service. So Thank you. I'm going to end the recording. Um, 
So, but thank you again for agreeing to be on. This has been fun. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Really appreciate the opportunity. All right. I'm going to stop recording now.